Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, the Modesto police were roaming, asking, but what's with the spouse? The police tape was strung across the driveway with care, while the hope of finding a clue, even one, hung precariously in the air. No one was nestled inside of their beds, because only dreadful visions that night danced in any of the family's heads. The mama in question, one month from being due, well, no one could say exactly where she might have got to. The story I'm telling is one you'll no doubt remember. It started on a Christmas Eve night, 18 previous Decembers. However, this isn't time to settle in for a long winter's nap. No friends, it's actually quite the opposite of that. You might think it's familiar, but we've only just begun. Because today, what I'm telling you is only part one. The story of Lacey and baby Connor holds more questions than not. And seriously, we need to discuss husband Scott. So on questions, on strangeness, on twists, and on mistresses. This, my friends, is a story of Lacey Peterson. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Lacey Peterson, maiden name Rosha, was to know a woman with a truly kind heart. That's the takeaway you're left with memories her family and friends have shared over the years. She was fun, she was charming, she had a beautiful dimpled smile, and she had a huge heart. Lacey Denise Rosha was born on May 4th, 1975, to her mother Sharon and her father Dennis. Her older brother Brent was three years old when baby Lacey was brought home from the hospital. Speaking to the Modesto Bee in 2003, Sharon called Lacey's happy-go-lucky personality even during her first days and weeks. Quote, When I would go and get her out of her crib, she would always wake up with a smile on her face. All her life, she's been a happy person. The Roches owned and operated a dairy farm a little beyond the town of Escalon, California, and it was here Lacey, to use the pun, blossomed. She adored being out in the gardens, pulling weeds, helping to muck stalls, and generally basking in the outdoors on the joy that she found in being surrounded by nature. It was a love that grew with her as she did. Sharon and Dennis divorced in 1977 when Lacey was two and Brent was five. Sharon and the children moved about 20 minutes away from Escalon to the city of Modesto. Modesto is rich in farmland and agriculture is truly a way of life in the area. In 2011, the city grossed about $3.1 billion in agricultural production. It shouldn't be a surprise that the idea of farm to table is one that resonated in the city even decades ago. Though the kids weren't living on the farm anymore, 
Lacey and Brent still trekked out to Escalon most weekends, both to help and have fun at the dairy. Shortly after the divorce, Sharon remarried. Her second husband was a man named Ron Gransky, a born Midwesterner and a former U.S. Navy intelligence technician. He'd been married once before, and he also had a child from that marriage, a son named Darren. When he married Sharon, he quickly assumed the role of surrogate father, developing close relationships with Brent, and especially Lacey, who really became like his own daughter. Dennis Rocha also remarried, and Lacey gained a stepbrother and later a half-sister. Through the divorce and the blending of families, though, Lacey never lost her smile. In Modesto and as she grew up, Lacey soon embodied, quote, a refreshing blend of confidence, sincerity, loudness, and charm. When she entered high school, she joined the cheerleading squad, and Brent soon had to keep his friends away from trying to date his pretty little sister. Lacey developed a close circle of friends at Thomas Downey High School, a gaggle of girls who loved to gossip, talk about boys, and they especially loved to have sleepovers. On one account of the Modesto Bee, the girls snuck champagne after the parents went to bed, and it was Lacey who was the only one that managed to get through the next day's classes despite the hangovers all of the teenage girls had. As one friend Renee Tomlinson put it to the Modesto Bee in 2003, Lacey was, quote, always perky, bubbly, energetic, chatty. She always wants to have fun. When the time came to go to college in 1993, Lacey chose to attend California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. It was here that Lacey was able to dive deep into her passion for plant life as she quickly became involved with the horticulture program. Her natural talent, nurtured by years of helping with her mother's gardens and on the farm, they shined here. And she even received the Outstanding Freshman Award in the Ornamental Horticulture Division of the program. It was that first summer after her freshman year, the summer of 1994, that Sharon received a phone call from her daughter, who was living in Morrow Bay, a waterfront city within the limits of San Luis Obispo County. Mother, Lacey said, according to Sharon, all excitement and energy, I have met the man I am going to marry. Lacey had her eye on him. That much was certain. That summer of 1994, she had taken to visiting a neighbor friend who worked at a local restaurant, the Pacific Cafe, while on summer break from her horticulture classes at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And that friend had a co-worker, a really cute co-worker in Lacey's opinion. She decided to take the plunge one day and slipped her phone number to her friend's co-worker, which was by all accounts classic Lacey making the first move. The waiter later called, and the week that Lacey told Sharon she had met the man she was going to marry, Scott Peterson took Lacey Rocha out on their first date, a deep-sea fishing trip where Lacey, unfortunately, wound up seasick. Scott Peterson was born in San Diego on October 24, 1972, to Lee and Jackie Peterson. He was one of six boys, a gaggle of brothers from his parents' previous marriages, as well as a sister. Others have described Scott as, quote, a golden child, quote, quiet and stoic, quote, Mr. Perfect, even as a kid. 
and where Lacey had found her passion in gardening at a young age, Scott found his early on as well. Golf. By 14, it was reported that Scott could beat his father during a day's round on the course. His father, Lee, told him that he would buy him a Ferrari when he could hit par, and by 16, he was doing just that. But a Ferrari was subbed in for a more reasonable car at the age of 17. While he also enjoyed fishing, a hobby he and his father shared, Scott soon had dreams of becoming a professional golfer. In high school, he was on the University of San Diego High School's golf team with future PGA pro, Phil Mickelson, and the two wound up attending Arizona State University together. Scott enrolled in 1990, and he was attending on a partial golf scholarship. It's unclear what exactly happened, but Scott only completed one semester at ASU. There are conflicting reports about what led to him leaving ASU, but something of interest is that ASU claims Scott was never actually on the golf team. In 2004, Doug Tamaro, ASU's Associate Sports Information Director, spoke to the San Francisco Gate and said Scott, quote, was never on a roster. We can't find anything here that says he was on our golf team. Lee, Scott's father, later testified that it was Scott's competition with Phil Mickelson, one that apparently started during their high school days, that led to Scott withdrawing from ASU, claiming he was, quote, discouraged. However, a report from the Broward County, Florida Sun Centennial says otherwise. According to reporter Randall Mel, he was told that wasn't exactly how things played out, because according to Mel's source, Scott was kicked off the team because of complaints made by another player's parent. As Mel reported it, quote, Chip Couch, the father of another Arizona State golfer, Chris Couch, told Mel that he got Peterson kicked off the golf team. Couch stated that Peterson had taken Chris out drinking and to meet girls, resulting in a hangover for Chris. As Chris was the number one junior in the country, Chip did not want Peterson to threaten his son's future and complained to the golf coach who kicked Peterson off the team. Regardless of what exactly happened at Arizona State, Scott soon found himself living with his parents at their home in Morrow Bay. He re-enrolled in school, attending Cuesta College in San Luis Obispo, a local community college where he started in the spring of 1992. For two years, he stayed at Cuesta, where he also this time confirmed by the sports information director, was on the school's golf team. In the spring of 1994, Scott transferred to Cal Poly. Here, he lived in a golf-themed bachelor pad with some friends on the Cal Poly team, while he also worked at two different golf courses. He also worked as a waiter at the Pacific Cafe, where he met Lacey Rocha in the summer of 1994. From the start, both Scott and Lacey were said to be smitten with each other, even despite Lacey's gastropyrotechnics on their first date. The same week that they had their laughable fishing expedition outing, Sharon drove out to San Luis Obispo in order to meet Scott. They arranged to have dinner together at the Pacific Cafe, and when the Rocha women arrived, Scott had apparently placed dozens, multiple, two dozen to be exact, roses on the table. A dozen white for Sharon, 
and a dozen red for Lacey. Months later, Scott was bringing Lacey home to meet his own parents, as well as his siblings. His half-sister, Susan Caudillo, recalled to the SF gate that when Lacey was introduced to them all, Scott, quote, said something to the effect of, I hope this is the future, Mrs. Peterson. The two dated for two years and then moved in together. Lacey graduated from Cali Paul in California of 19, in December of 1997 with her degree in ornamental horticulture, while Scott finished up his own. He had switched from international business to a focus on agricultural business, while he had also hung up his dreams of becoming a professional golfer. After Lacey's graduation, while Scott was still in his senior year, it became official. Scott's comment about Lacey becoming the future Mrs. Peterson came true when they married on August 9th, 1997. Since Scott was finishing up his degree, Lacey decided to take a job as a wine distributor in Prunedale, a city almost two hours away from San Luis Obispo. It's been alleged by prosecutors that during this tail end of his academia, Scott engaged in his first affairs while married to Lacey. At the time, which was the first few months of 1998, he was living back in San Luis Obispo with a roommate. Well, Lacey was two hours away. Living separately for the first months of their marriage, Scott still technically in college while Lacey was out in the quote-unquote real world, doesn't bode well. According to Gloria Gomez, a reporter for KOVR 13, quote, Lacey found out about the affair after making a surprise visit back to San Luis Obispo. That night, Lacey ignored Scott during a dinner date with another couple. Lacey never told anyone about the incident, and it was never mentioned again. The Modesto B would later report that an insider source claimed Lacey had confided in them about her concerns Scott had cheated on her during those early months of 1998 and their marriage. Quote, she implied that Scott had not been faithful, the source said. She never actually admitted the extent of the affair, though. What's odd about these allegations is that we don't know much more than that. But that's something we'll discuss a bit later. In June 1998, Scott finally graduated with his agricultural business degree, and Lacey was back in San Luis Obispo. No more wine distributing because shortly after Scott graduated, the two purchased a small restaurant. And thus, the shack was born. It was marketed as a little neighborhood spot by all accounts, a hamburger joint, if you will, that was known to have little buckets of peanuts on every table. Ever the creative tastemaker, Lacey, quote, incorporated signs painted on driftwood, a wine barrel trash can, and an old fishing tackle box affixed over the front door for their little business endeavor. A former college advisor of Lacey shared that, quote, they had great beer-battered onion rings, and with time, the shack became a bit of a success. Nothing crazy, to be sure, but by the time the Petersons sold their restaurant in 2000, it had become legitimately profitable, despite their loved one's initial concerns that Lacey and Scott were simply being two crazy kids in love. Their first few years of marriage under their belt, Lacey and Scott took stock of their lives and decided it was time to move. Move closer to friends, move closer to family, 
and move closer to starting a family of their own. So in October 2000, for a grand total of $177,000, the two purchased a house in Lacey's hometown of Modesto. It was a fixer-upper, to be sure, but the two were gifted $15,000 from each set of parents to help with the initial cost, and they seemed to take pleasure in the work that they did to create their suburban home. Lacey created flower gardens in the front and backyards, Scott painted bathrooms, and they even broke ground in order to install a pool. When they weren't fixing up their home, Scott was working a 60K salary job at Tradecore, an agricultural supply business that utilized Scott to build up their West Coast clientele by selling irrigation systems, fertilizer, and other chemical nutrients. Lacey, meanwhile, was working as a substitute teacher, which she had apparently fallen in love with. They joined a local country club to indulge Scott's golf game, and Scott became a member of the Rotary Club. Lacey would frequently see her family members as well as old high school friends who stayed in the area that she was reconnecting with. A few times a year, Scott would meet halfway with his father and brother or two to go pheasant hunting, hiking, or fishing. They welcomed home a golden retriever pup, Mackenzie, who joined Lacey's two adored cats, Siam and Gracie. Life was peaceful. It was all American. It was good. And in June 2002, the Petersons grew from two to three because Lacey was pregnant. The thing about telling the story of Lacey Peterson is that it's almost like telling two stories tangled into one when we arrive at the point where she discovers that she's pregnant, at least. There's the story of life as Lacey knew it, and then there's the other half of things, which was the life that Scott knew, the one he cultivated solely for himself. It makes telling this story all the more interesting and, admittedly, all the more difficult, because it really is a matter of if they knew then what we know now, and it makes me feel a bit like an omniscient narrator. Without jumping too far ahead or entangling timelines too tightly, I'm going to do my best to share what we know about the summer, fall, and winter of 2002 from both sides of the coin that represented the Petersons' lives. It was the very early morning on June 9th, 2002, that Lacey discovered she was pregnant. And that same day, she was calling family and friends to share the news. The documentary, The Murder of Lacey Peterson, stated by some accounts that Lacey and Scott initially didn't want children when they first became married. But according to his sister, Janie Peterson, the next year, just after allegedly stating that they didn't plan to have children, they were now trying to conceive. It's an interesting sidebar, this suggestion that perhaps they hadn't initially wanted children. By all other accounts, Lacey and Scott were both excited when the news came that she was in fact pregnant. Throughout the pregnancy, multiple people stated Scott was quite happy to be having a bundle of joy on the way. Scott took particular pains to make the nursery that they were setting up for the baby, who they learned would be a boy, and they decided to name Connor, as perfect as it could be with its nautical theme. Though they both helped to set up the nursery, which was, quote, decorated in a nautical theme with blue walls and a life preserver centled with the word welcome, it was Scott that was said to have put in most of the work, 
He, quote, put in a lot of hours into making that baby room just right, according to family friend Guy Maligi. Quote, he was real excited about having his first child. He talked about that all the time. Scott even talked about the pregnancy to potential new hires at trade court that he interviewed. At the end of June or beginning of July 2002, Scott hired an additional sales rep, Eric Olson, to take over the Southern California, Arizona, and Nevada territories. According to later interviews, Olson shared that he learned quickly that not only was Scott married, but he and his wife, since he never actually met Lacey, they were expecting. According to Olson, Scott, quote, seemed happy about the pregnancy. Excited though they all were, Lacey was very meticulous about her prenatal appointments and staying on top of her health throughout her pregnancy. She had had surgery previously on her cervix, and she shared her concerns with her OBGYN, Dr. Tina Edraki, during one of her first appointments in late August. They performed an ultrasound because Lacey was so concerned about the condition of her cervix that she feared she'd lose the baby. But all was well. This wouldn't be the first or last time that Lacey called into her OBGYN with concerns, though. On October 24th, 2002, Scott was in Anaheim at the Disneyland Hotel for an industry convention for CAPCA, the California Association of Pest Control Advisors. Tradecore had a booth at the convention, and both Scott and Eric Olson, his recent hire, were attending to represent the company. It was here that Scott met a woman named Sean Sibley. This was the second night of the conference, and, like most conferences, there was a socializing aspect built into the whole affair. That night, October 24th, was a themed Monday Night Football Social Hour, and Sean Sibley was talking with a new acquaintance, David Fernandez, who she had met through an industry friend of her own. As she chatted with Fernandez, a former co-worker of his walked up, Eric Olson. And with Eric Olson was Scott Peterson. The group eventually left the sponsored social in search of dinner plans, and they found themselves at the nearby House of Blues. The conversation topics were varied, but one particular vein of conversation kept coming up. Relationships. At the time, Sean was engaged, and she testified that she brought up her fiancé a handful of times. Because she had yet to pick out a wedding date, though, the men she was with were ragging on her, joking. Scott in particular picked on Sean for this. She testified that, quote, He's like, well, do you have a wedding date? And I said, no, not yet. And you know, the guys kind of harassed me about that. Kind of used to that. I just blew it off. All this was interesting to Sean because she was under the impression that Scott wasn't married. According to Sean's testimony, quote, Scott acted like he wasn't married because he asked me if actually on our way over to dinner, he was asking me what he could put on his name tag to attract women to him that night. He said, because it's in a little plastic sliding and it's a paper, so you can slide out the paper. He said, what could he write on the back of the name tag that would attract women to him that night? And so then when we got to the dinner table, I wrote on the back of it, I'm rich. And he didn't really like that. I said, well, it's something that could attract women to you tonight if you want. 
He'd been talking about owning two homes and being successful. Talking a lot about having a lot of money. Owning, you know, launching this company. Narrator voice. There was no other company. Scott had given Sean two business cards, one of which he claimed was for, quote, a company in Europe he had owned and sold. This, of course, was not true. And she noted that, not once throughout the evening, did Scott share that he was married, or much less expecting his firstborn child. Neither did anyone else at the table. What they did talk about, a lot, apparently, though, was sex and soulmates. Sean's testimony about the rest of the evening's conversations went like this. Quote, at one point, like, we brought up the topic about vegetarianism. My being a vegetarian at dinner came up. The guys were all harassing me. And Scott said during college, he'd become a vegetarian for, I think, it was like six months or six weeks, something like that, for some girl. And I said, that's pretty stupid to change your way of life for a girl. And he said, well, it's great sex. And then later on that night, he brought up, it was like a constant thing with him. Just, we would be talking about something else, and he would bring up sex. He did ask me, you know, my sexual preferences for sexual positions at one point in the evening. But it was kind of joking. So I don't know. I was talking about how my fiancé is my soulmate. And Scott told me that. He said that at one point in his life, he had found a woman that he thought was his soulmate. But then he lost her. And he asked me, did that mean I thought that this was going to mean that he was going to spend the rest of his life alone? I told him, I said, no, I don't believe that. I believe there is a thousand people out there in this world who can be your soulmate, but because of circumstances or whatever, you're not going to meet all thousand of those people. He was talking about, he said that he had dated, had a lot of one night stands, and he was sick of having one night stands. And he was sick of, seemed like all the women that he met were just these bimbos with no brains. And he was really interested in finding someone who had intelligence. And didn't I have any single friends I could hook him up with? because he hadn't been successful in finding anyone for himself. And he wanted to have a long-term relationship with someone. It's what he was saying. Now again, not once did Scott say he was married. As the night went on for Scott and Sean, she started to warm up to him a little more. And after consideration, she told him, you know, she actually did have a friend in mind. Her verbatim testimony was, quote, I said, I have a friend that is single, but she's, I told him, she's been through a lot of bad relationships. So if you're not serious about having a long-term meaningful relationship, then you know, I don't want to hook you up with her. But if you are, then I would be willing to introduce you to her. He was very interested in meeting her. And, but then his, you know, his first question was, is she intelligent? And I said, you know, there are different levels of intelligence. I think she's intelligent. And then he said, what did she look like? And I said, I think she's pretty. Some people think she's too thin. He said, I like thin women. As Sean put it, she became convinced Scott was, genuinely, looking for a serious relationship. So the next day of the conference, she shared with him her friend's name and her phone number so the two could connect. That friend was Amber Fry. But Scott and Amber, they didn't connect for a little while. 
Not yet, anyway. On November 1st, 2002, Sean sent Scott an email accusing him of backing out on connecting with Amber since she'd yet to hear from him. The email read, quote, So, what's up? Any exciting things for this weekend? When are you going to make your date with Amber? You told me before that you'd come to Fresno any time. Are you chickening out? What's interesting about this email is just one small detail. The mention of Fresno. It's not clear when Scott told Sean this, but Sean was under the impression that Scott lived in Sacramento, which was about an hour and 10 minutes away from Modesto. No doubt a bid to try and conceal the facts of his real life. Fresno, though, is an hour and a half from Modesto, while the distance between Sacramento and Fresno is two hours and 35 minutes. Who knows exactly what lies Scott was spinning when telling Sean and giving her all of these locations that were relatively close to each other, but it's clear to me that it seems he was trying to position this made-up life of his in such a way that it wouldn't necessarily be odd if he was in the Modesto area at any given time, since it was somewhat of a midway point between Sacramento and Fresno. As this part of Scott's life was taking place, Lacey was dealing with more concerns about her pregnancy. On October 29th, she'd gone in for a prenatal appointment and voiced her worries about the amount of weight that she had gained. A week later, on November 6th, Lacey called Dr. Adraki and, quote, complained that the previous week she'd had some lightheadedness and dizziness after 20 minutes of walking. She experienced the same thing on the 6th. She told the doctor that she always walks after breakfast. Dr. Adraki advised her to, quote, not exercise, or if she did, to do it later in the day, when she was hydrated and had eaten something. Two days later, though, on November 8th, Lacey called again, and it was clear that she hadn't listened to Dr. Adraki's advice. She spoke to a nurse at the time, Cheryl Smith, and, quote, reported shortness of breath while taking walks, but did not complain that she had passed out or had blacked out. Lacey, it should be noted, reportedly had previously fainted during her pregnancy. At this time, Lacey was 27 weeks pregnant, or just about six months, heading into her third trimester. Her 20-week ultrasound had recalibrated her original due date of February 10th, and they'd only recently learned that Connor's due date was actually a week later, projected to be February 16th. She was having a little bit of a rough go of it, no doubt trying to keep up with all aspects of her active life, from her teaching, her social obligations, the housewife duties that she loved attending to, gardening, and generally living her life. On November 11th, they decided to hire a housekeeper, though, possibly in a bid to help Lacey out around the house as she started to slow down. Margarita Nava was brought in, and her arrangement was that she would come clean the couple's house every two weeks, from 8.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. While Lacey was trying to get a handle on the challenges of her third trimester, Scott was fielding emails and calls from Sean and Amber Fry. On November 14th, Sean sent an email to Scott. He'd previously complained to her that, despite meeting in a business setting, he preferred to talk about personal things in regards to their friendship first, and then they could discuss business. The email she sent on the 14th included these more personal comments. Quote, How was the snow? Find any bunnies to ease your frustrations? It sure is nice to be in a regular relationship 
where such things are so easily resolved. Ha ha. You missed an excellent dinner where Ayana, Amber's daughter, was the life of the party. Eight adults standing around laughing at the kid. Little Nico is still too small to be much fun. He's only three months old. The 20-year-old boys were also entertained, trying to figure out Ayana's magic picture book. I still think of them as boys, even though they really are grown men now. Makes me feel old. Speaking of old, how is life at 30? Anyhow, I hope I really do get to babysit next week. Ayana is so fun. Most of the time. See you later, HB. S. Some translations for you, since that email is full of insider context. As Sean explained on the stand, she had invited Scott to a group dinner that weekend, but, quote, he'd gone to, he told me that he'd gone to, I think, Mammoth for skiing, and said that he was going to be looking for some snow bunnies up there. And I had invited him to come over to dinner. And he had missed dinner because he said he was going skiing instead, so I just told him about the dinner that he missed. Ayana, as she helpfully explained in her email, was Amber's young daughter. And Sean had arranged it with Amber that, whenever she and Scott did connect, Sean would gladly babysit Ayana so Amber could enjoy the date that she'd been set up on. A date that had yet to occur. And the HB initials? Those charmingly stood for Horny Bastard, a nickname Scott gave himself during a phone call that he once had with Sean. And just, you know, for the record again, Never, not once, not ever, did Scott give any indication that he was married as he was spinning all of these strange lies and making even stranger lurid comments. Five days later, though, Sean got her wish. Amber and Scott had their first series of phone calls on November 19th. And the next day, November 20th, 2002, their affair began in full. On November 20th, 2002, Scott Peterson and Amber Fry met for their first date. They decided that they would meet at the Elephant Bar, a pan-Asian spot in Fresno, once known for its happy hour, and then they would head to dinner. Sean was babysitting Ayana, and she'd, according to Amber, quote, only half-jokingly told Amber to, quote, just remember that I have to be at work tomorrow morning. Now, Scott and Amber, the two hadn't seen pictures of each other, but before their date, they chatted on the phone and described what they looked like to each other. This the age before Tinder and selfies, I suppose. First, they joked that they weren't exactly attractive, and then they both factually described what they looked like. When Amber told Scott that she was tall, slim, and blonde, he allegedly replied that, quote, that it won't be a problem if I walk up to every attractive blonde in the place and ask if she's Amber. The date was set. 7 p.m. arrived. Amber was sitting at the bar, and four minutes past seven, a man walked into the restaurant in a well-cut suit, and there he was. Scott had finally made his appearance. The two had never planned to stay at Elephant Bar for long, but Scott made a surprising request. Quote, I've been in this suit all day. Would you mind very much if we went to my hotel so I could check in and shower and change? The two then got into his Ford truck, left her car at the Elephant Bar, and drove to the Radisson Hotel in downtown Fresno, where Amber followed him up to his room once he checked in. And just, 
The amount of red flags in this whole scenario are just staggering. Never go into a hotel room with a strange man after just meeting him. Good goddamn. In any regard, Scott pulled out all the stops when they got up to his room. Inside one of his duffel bags that he'd brought with him, he pulled out not just a bottle of champagne, but also a box of strawberries to go with the bubbly. Amber, writing in an account that she shared with the Today Show, remembered thinking, quote, Clearly, this was a man who planned ahead. Scott showered, dressed, and then the two were off to their dinner plans. Idoya, a Japanese restaurant specializing in hibachi and teppanyaki. However, Scott pulled another surprise out of his bag of tricks. According to Amber's later testimony, quote, We sat down here at the teppanyaki seating area and he excused himself. He said he would be right back. When he returned, he told me to come with him and he'd got a private room for us to have dinner. As Amber told it, the two discussed quite a bit during their dinner. Quote, I talked about myself, what I did for a living as a massage therapist, different interests. He talked about himself, his business and travels, his family, holidays. Scott shared that he worked for Tradecore and the work that he did as a fertilizer and chemical nutrient sales rep. He told her that while he had a warehouse in Modesto, he lived in Sacramento, but he also had a condo in San Diego. As the holidays were upon them, he shared what his plans were. Thanksgiving, he was going to be taking a trip to Alaska, fishing with a, his father, a brother, and an uncle. And when it came to Christmas, he'd be joining his mother and father in Kennebunkport, Maine. Amber was, by all accounts, having a great date. She said that, quote, he was easygoing. He was easy to talk to. He made me feel comfortable. And most notably, she shared that, quote, he did not have a ring. And I did not notice that he ever had a ring. The two were so engrossed in their conversation at Ido Ya, quote, the lights outside the doors were all shut down and they asked that we leave and they were closing. The night was still young, so they headed next door to a karaoke bar named Bibi's, had more drinks and continued their conversation. Scott managed to convince Amber to get up and sing karaoke, though she'd never done so before, and he joined her on the stage to ease her nerves. While at Bibi's, they shared a dance, a slow dance, and they kissed. They eventually left Beebe's, headed into a convenience store where Scott made a purchase, and they went back to the Radisson. For more conversation, and, inevitably at this point, to have sex. This night, November 20th, Lacey was home in Modesto, watching The Bachelor at her friend Lori Ellsworth's house with some other friends. November 21st dawned. Amber had stayed the night and woke up to a frantic message from Sean that she needed to get back. Sean finally got a hold of Amber and testified that she said, quote, you need to get home because I got to be at work and you need to come home and get your kid because I've got to be, I'm going to be late to work otherwise. Scott dropped her back at her car at the Elephant Bar where a more awkward conversation came up. The fact that Scott was going to be away the next week and how they would communicate while he was traveling. From Amber's testimony, quote, he made a comment about having to leave the next week after meeting me and kind of the awkwardness that we both discussed a little bit, awkwardness of that evening or the ending of the evening with one another, that we ended up being intimate with each other. I had made a comment about that and he reassured me it 
being inappropriate or somewhat the evening's events. He would keep, or that he would keep in contact with me. That he wasn't great on the phone, but he would try to make an effort to try and talk to me. Throughout the next few days, the two exchanged calls intermittently while life carried on in Scott's married version of his life. Preparing for their upcoming baby shower, preparing for the holidays, which would be sent with his side of the family. Just rather mundane things. On the 24th, Sharon and Ron, Lacey's parents, had dinner with Lacey at her house since they wouldn't be seeing the two for Thanksgiving. The next day, November 25th, Lacey had another prenatal appointment where her only complaint was of swelling hands and feet. Her mother noted that at this point in her pregnancy, quote, Lacey was having a hard time standing up for any length of time or walking. Her back was aching and she seemed to be tired all the time. And for some reason, despite these effects of pregnancy, on November 26th, Scott took Lacey to Disneyland. Sharon later recounted how miserable the day was for Lacey. Quote, what she told me was that she didn't even want to go to Disneyland because she wasn't feeling well. Her feet were swelling. She knew she couldn't walk around the park, so she knew that it was not going to be fun for her. And she didn't really want to go at all. She told me they rented a wheelchair and Scott had pushed her around Disneyland in the wheelchair. When I learned this particular detail, I quite literally said, what a jackass to myself out loud. Because truly, who in their right mind would think dragging their uncomfortably pregnant wife to a day of walking and standing and waiting at fucking Disneyland? What pregnant woman wants to spend a day at Disney when they're uncomfortable and just simply not feeling at all their best? Wheelchair or no, that sounds like hell. It also just seems so out of touch that Scott had no idea, or maybe not a care, for his pregnant wife's physical or emotional feelings. Especially when you consider that the next day, they had to travel to San Diego for the holidays. On the 27th, the Petersons hosted a baby shower for Lacey and Scott. Now, the distance between Modesto and San Diego is roughly six and a half hours, so again, let's all take this into consideration. You are pregnant, going through it with the pregnancy as it is, you spend one day at Disneyland running around, and then the next day, you drive six and a half hours to start the Thanksgiving holidays with your in-laws, beginning with a baby shower. The whole thing just plays out like it would have been utterly exhausting, and like I said earlier, just completely out of touch with your pregnant wife's needs. Scott may have been distracted, though, because during this time, he was still able to communicate with Amber while still holding on to his story that he was in Alaska fishing with his father, brother, and uncle. From one call, a voicemail, as Amber recalled on the stand, Scott relayed, quote, that he'd been looking through a California hiking tour guide booklet of some sort, and I believe that was on a message as far as for me to think of somewhere to go, if I had someplace in mind. The two decided on Squaw's Leap up in Aubrey, a hiking area just outside of Fresno. Their hiking date started on Monday, December 2nd, and Ayana, Amber's daughter, was present for this date that ended up spanning two days. Scott had told Amber that he wanted to meet the little one, as he referred to her, and he showed up to their home in Fresno in full Scott mode. Quote, I met him out in the driveway at his vehicle. We gave each other a hug. 
he handed me a plant of a bowl that had bloomed in amaryllis. And he got a bag of groceries to bring in. He had gone shopping and bought things for dinner that evening. The two played house for a bit, unloading groceries and chatting, and then they situated Scott's truck to be outfitted with Ayana's car seat. They drove to Ayana's preschool, picked her up, and the three of them set out for their hike outing in Aubrey. Again, Scott came fully prepared to pull out the impressing stops with blankets and snacks. From Amber's testimony, she stated, quote, It was for a picnic that we had talked about having. There were baby carrots and almonds, some cookies, beverage. We laid back. We talked. Ayana, we were all munching a little bit, watching a helicopter that kept flying by overhead. When the weather turned chilly after a while, they headed back and, winded from the hiking and carrying her tired daughter, Amber stated that, quote, Scott ended up carrying my daughter up the trail back to the vehicle. They spent the evening of their second date making a seafood lasagna, which, sidebar, what the fuck, still getting to know each other and enjoying a bottle of wine that Scott had brought with him. Amber stated that at one point, quote, I talked about another friend of mine that had talked about saving the corks of the wine as far as who you drank it with and the date just as a kind of memorabilia kind of gesture. And so I had done that with the cork from that bottle of wine. And we discussed missing the first cork from the first date. And he made a comment that there would be many more to come. It is truly the pathological dedication to compartmentalization for me when it comes to all this. It is astounding to see how Scott so completely separated himself from his life as married Scott Peterson to single Scott H.B. horny bastard Peterson looking for love and a soulmate. It is just really, really fucking wild once you start to recognize how truly and deeply the pathology of his lies ran within him. The evening continued with Scott presenting Ayana with a gift a little book, and Amber told him to, quote, not be silly when he suggested that he stay at a hotel. He stayed with Amber instead, where they again had sex. The next two days established a routine in this long-winded date. Scott claimed that he was conducting work during the daytime, and when he finished, he gave Amber a call to connect with her. On December 3rd, she asked, since she was so comfortable with him at this point, if he would mind picking Ayana up from preschool that day because she had a massage client who was running late. He told Amber that he would be on record for the jury, quote, honored to do so. Amber allowed Scott to pick up her daughter. She gave him a key to her apartment. And when she came home that day, it was the perfect image of domesticity. Quote, my daughter was sitting in her high chair. She had some food in front of her. He was in the kitchen pulling out some bread that he had toasted. He was warming leftovers from the dinner before, the lasagna, and there was wine in a glass. Later that night, they went out to a local Christmas tree farm lot and selected a Christmas tree. While decorating, the topic of marriage came up. According to Amber, quote, I had asked him if he had ever been married or if he had ever been close to being married, and he said no. I asked if he had any children or if he was ever close to having children. And he said no. The pathologicalness of it all, it makes me sick. It really, really does. But it's here, after December 4th, after Scott and Amber's play-pretend domestic life date, 
that the balls of lies that Scott had created for himself, that ball started to unravel. I want to take you back six months now, the summer of 2002, sometime in June. And I want to introduce you to another character in our story, a bit one, albeit, but one who became the catalyst in untangling Scott's lies. There was another man that Scott met with that summer while Trade Corps was hiring for another sales rep. That rep would eventually be Eric Olson. But before Eric Olson, there was Mike Almazri, who, as it turned out, worked with Sean Sibley. That summer, Mike had seen the same ad that Eric had about the position available at Trade Corps, and he'd gone in for an interview. It was a lunch interview at an Applebee's in Fresno, and conducting that interview was our boy Scott. According to Almazri's testimony, quote, at the end of the interview, I just noticed that he looked young. So I just asked him, you know, how was he able to get into such a position for his young age? And he indicated that he had met with the company and he lived in Modesto. And him and his wife just bought a house. It's always the details that get you, the seemingly innocuous ones. Almazri didn't end up getting the job. So he remained working at the same company, the same company that Sean worked at. Let's fast forward back to December 2002. On December 6th, a gaggle of these co-workers were gathered, quote, just sitting around talking about jobs, as Almazri put it, and quote, everybody was talking about their experience, you know, trying to look for jobs. And it just came up. It being that Almazri knew a Scott Peterson from Modesto that was married. And as Sean put it, when she heard this from her coworker's mouth, she, quote, freaked. Because I had set him up with Amber, and I figured there is not two Scott Petersons with Trade Corps. Too small a world for that. Sean testified that after confirming with Almazri that he knew Scott and all that he knew about Scott, and confirming that he was, in fact, married, quote, I immediately went outside and called Scott and said, I heard that you're married, and, you know, what the hell is up with this? And he said he kept denying it. And I said, you know, if I find you're lying to me, I'm going to, excuse my language, Your Honor, but I said, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. I was extremely upset, and he kept denying it. So I got off the phone with him. From there, Sean stated that she went back into her office, dug through her things, and found Eric Olson's business card from the conference that they'd all attended together in October. Now, Eric Olson had been at the Monday Night Football Social at the conference, and he had witnessed those conversations between Sean and Scott about sex, soulmates, sexual preferences, all of it. As he later testified and described the experience, quote, Scott and Sean had a conversation that I believe was somewhat inappropriate for a married man and an engaged female. He was so uncomfortable with the direction of the conversation, he merely ate his dinner while they were all at the House of Blues, and he left immediately after that. Eric also knew that not only was Scott married, but he knew Lacey. And he knew Lacey was pregnant. 
There's a lot that can be said about why Eric didn't intervene during these conversations, why he never chided Scott publicly, or pointedly mentioned that he was, in fact, married, and that he actually had a child on the way. And I'm sure Sean was thinking and saying to Eric just exactly what she was feeling about it all when she called him on December 6th, demanding to know what was going on. According to Eric's testimony, quote, she wanted to know from me if Scott was married. And at that point, I really, as an employee of Scott's, I didn't feel that I wanted to be drug into the situation that was going on, which I wasn't sure because Sean had stated that she would like to set up Scott with one of her friends. And I told Sean that she needed to speak with Scott about this, that I wasn't going to get in the middle of his personal life. It's a cop-out in a moral sense, to be sure, but also... It has to be said, we never know how we'd react in any given situation. So I can understand from an objective standpoint why Eric just wanted to be kept out of it all. Frustrated with the lack of answers, Sean quickly purchased a $30 investigative kit online, and she began searching through marriage records. She learned she started with Sacramento first, because that's where she'd been led to believe that Scott lived. Without any hits there, though, she was about to start on Modesto, when... An hour after the first confrontation, Scott called, and she ignored him. His message went to voicemail, and she listened to it. Apparently, he was, quote, sobbing on my voicemail, saying that I'm sorry I lied to you earlier. I had been married. It's just too painful for me to talk about. Call me back. Sean did call him back, but Scott didn't answer. In her message, she told him to call her on her house phone later, and when he did... This was how their conversation went down. Quote, Scott's just sobbing hysterically, and he says, I'm so sorry I lied to you earlier. I had been married. I lost my wife. It's too painful for me to talk about. Please just give me the opportunity to tell Amber in person. I'm going to be in town on Monday. Please don't tell her. This wasn't just please let me have the chance to tell her myself. And he's just begging me this whole time. And I said, I said, Scott, I don't care if you were widowed or you were divorced. All I care about is, are you currently married right now? And he said, no, absolutely not. Sean agreed to let him tell Amber herself, but she gave him the stipulation of three days to do it. He had until Monday, December 9th, to tell Amber that he had lied. Lied about this lost wife. But... Before he did that, Scott decided to go sailing. December 7th through the 8th, Scott was sailing with a group of friends in the San Francisco Bay. On the 8th, Scott did a little research about the bay itself. According to a computer forensic expert testimony, at around 10 a.m. on the 8th, quote, Scott's computer contained graphics from the U.S. Geological Survey website showing the central San Francisco Bay, a velocity chart of either wind currents or water currents that couldn't be determined. He accessed the Captain Hook sport fishing website, and the pages that he viewed included information about sturgeon fishing and the Sui Sun Bay. Scott also accessed the SF Port San Francisco Central Bay Tides and Currents website at 10 a.m. He looked up boat launch information, some in Watsonville, some in other areas, various places where you could launch a boat in the bay. The only time he looked up fishing information on his computer was on December 8th. He then looked in the Fresno Bee 
for ads on boats for sale. And a boat he found. An ad in the paper caught his eye, and he reached out to the owner selling it, Bruce Peterson, no relation. He told him that he'd take the boat the next day, December 9th, if he would hold on to it for him so Scott could arrange to get the necessary amount that Bruce was asking for. Bruce was only interested in a cash payment, and as it was a Sunday, the banks were closed, so Scott couldn't get a hold of the $1,400 being asked. On 10 a.m. on December 9th, Scott bought himself a boat. A Sears Game Fisher 14-foot aluminum boat equipped with a 15-horsepower outboard motor. Included with the boat itself, Bruce Peterson threw in, quote, two life jackets, two seat cushions, one oar, one six-gallon gas tank, a battery, a fish finder, a small trolling motor, a tan-colored boat cover, two spare tires, one in the boat, one attached to the trailer, and auxiliary wheels attached to the back of the boat. But no anchors. Bruce had planned to buy himself another boat, so he kept the anchors. After Scott bought his boat, he made a call that afternoon. To Amber. There was something he needed to talk to her about. When Scott arrived, Amber had no earthly idea what conversation Scott wanted to have. She simply thought he was dropping by for an afternoon hangout since he had been in the area. That's not how it went down. As soon as they walked into Amber's house, Scott said, quote, something that he may have done terrible to a possibly beautiful relationship had happened. He said that he had lied to me and that it would be easier if I, if I, if I never want to see him again. Or that I may need to, to take time, basically, I guess, to digest what he was about to tell me. And that, that it was hard, hard for him to express what he was, what he was going to be telling me. Finally, Scott spit it out. He had lied. Amber testified that, quote, He said that he had lied to me about ever being married. And he had stated that sometimes for himself, when people would ask, it was easier for him to say that he was not or never had been married and other people that sometimes he would just agree and not say anything or correct them, that he was. He said that, obviously, without saying much, that she was not with him, and that it was just entirely painful for him to talk about. I had asked, asked him, as far as the time frame is, had it been long, basically. And he stated that this was the first holidays that he would be spending without her. My response was, I thanked him for sharing that with me, it being so painful for him, and understanding that, that it was hard for him to do so. After he stated it was the first holidays without her, I asked if he was ready for a relationship with me. He said, absolutely. If nothing else can be said for Scott Peterson, at the very least, the son of a bitch can act. Scott, quote, unquote, admitted to Amber that he had, quote, lost his wife on December 9th, 2002. Just a day or so later, they attended a party together, a birthday party at Sean Sibley's house being held for her fiance. Now, if you're at all familiar with this case, don't jump ahead because this party isn't that party with those pictures. No, that infamous party took place on December 14th, 2002. And on December 14th, 2002, 
Here is where we enter what some might consider the final countdown. During their conversation about the alleged truth behind Scott's relationship history, Scott also reiterated his plans for the holidays to Amber, because of course, he was going to be very busy and wasn't quite sure when he'd be able to see her. According to Amber, quote, he said he would be leaving on the 23rd to go duck hunting with his family in Maine. Between the 9th and the 23rd, he was going to be doing a lot of traveling in Arizona and Sacramento and other places, and he would stop in and see me when he could. From the 23rd to the 28th, he was out of state. He would be in Paris for New Year's, and then from the 28th to the end of January, he would be in Europe. When he returned, that's when we would resume our relationship. One of the times that he stopped in to see her was December 14th, the night of a formal Christmas party they decided to attend together. One so formal that Scott rented a tux for the occasion. And when Scott arrived on the 14th at Amber's house, he had with him roses. A dozen red roses, awfully similar to the ones that he had given Lacey back during their first summer. He included two dozen additional ones, pink ones, telling Amber that he hoped that she had enough vases for all of them. As the two prepared to head into the formal, Amber asked a pretty crucial question. How exactly did they want to introduce each other in regards to their relationship to others? Scott allegedly told Amber that, quote, he said that he wasn't seeing anybody else and that he was monogamous and that we discussed as far as the title. He was saying for me to, or that we introduce each other as lover. And I said, well, that kind of doesn't sound appropriate to introduce somebody as. And he said, well, how about my love? That sounds good. And at that point is when he said that, I asked if he was seeing anyone else. He said he wasn't. That he was monogamous. And I was wanting to know basically as introducing him as my boyfriend. And at that point, he said that would be appropriate. The audacity of Scott Peterson truly never fails to astound me. Throughout the night, Scott handed out Amber's business cards to people, referred to her as his girlfriend, and of course, he took the photos with Amber sitting on his lap, her in a red dress, and himself decked out in a Santa hat. When they returned to Amber's house that night, they had unprotected sex, which led to an interesting conversation. Amber stated, quote, when we were together, he apologized for that it wasn't fair that we had just engaged in unprotected relations. And at that point, we were talking about a few different subjects, one being birth control methods, as well as having other children. For himself and being with me, he didn't feel the, that he needed to have a biological child. That if he were together with me and Ayana, that he would consider her his own and raise her together as his. He brought up the discussion of vasectomy. Just gonna let that one marinate for a second because the audacity is something else. Lacey, you might be wondering, where was she during all of this? She was at another Christmas party, alone. Scott had told her that he had business he needed to attend to in Fran San Francisco the night of the party, 
that their two friends, Terry Western and Stacey Boyers, were holding. Sharon later recalled asking if Scott could have waited to head to San Fran. Couldn't they have pushed the meeting until the Monday? Because, I mean, like, how exceedingly sad is that to make your very pregnant wife go to a family friend holiday party alone? But Lacey said that it wasn't going to happen. The 14th, that was the day that the person needed to see Scott. Instead, she attended the party by herself, wearing a dark red ensemble, still smiling brightly. She sat in a rocking chair for the majority of the hour and a half that she was there, letting people come to her since she was so tired, as she told one friend. Tired, but still excited for their soon-to-be-born baby. The next day, Scott and Lacey had Lacey's mother, Sharon, and her stepfather, Ron, over for dinner. They planned to spend the next few days up in Carmel with Scott's parents, Jackie and Lee, before the craziness of Christmas week descended. December 15th, that dinner, was the last time that Sharon ever saw her daughter. As she stared on the stand, it was a pretty standard evening. Quote, I remember Lacey talking about Scott was going to make a lasagna, but he didn't get home in time, so she bought a lasagna. And she was a little disappointed in that because she likes to make things. We had talked about Ron and how I had gone fishing that morning, and that was a big surprise because I don't do that. Lacey was really surprised that I had even gone fishing with Ron. Nowhere in this conversation did Scott interject about his purchase of the boat that he had made on December 9th. Despite being a fisher himself, despite knowing his father-in-law was an avid fisherman, no comments about his new boat. Quote, none whatsoever, as Sharon said. Even Lacey didn't mention the boat, which is something we'll come back to. The next day, December 16th through December 19th, Scott and Lacey were in Carmel with his parents as part of an annual holiday tradition. Scott's family had designation overseeing Scott and Lacey for Easter and Thanksgiving, so since Lacey's family had Christmas, this Carmel trip was an opportunity for Scott's side of the family to see them, despite not being with them for the actual Christmas holiday. Jackie, Scott's mother, said while the men golfed most of the day, she and Lacey had their own little traditions. Quote, We would leave at 10 and shop until noon, and then stop for lunch, and then finish up along the way back to the hotel looking at stores. We made a day of it. A normal family weekend trip together. Punctuated, it should be noted, by phone calls. Phone calls between Scott and Amber, even in the midst of this little extended family getaway. Phone records show that he called Amber five times on the 16th, their first day in Carmel, and he placed four calls on the 17th. On the 19th, Scott and Amber exchanged eight calls. On December 20th, both Scott and Lacey were back in Modesto. Scott had a meeting with a client in Stockton that day, and Eric Olson, as well as a new hire, a man named Robert Weaver, drove to meet him at the Modesto warehouse since they were all going to this meeting. None of the men went into the warehouse that day, though Eric had been inside it before, where he had seen bags of cement, at least some partially used, at the beginning of the month. After the meeting in Stockton, Scott is alleged to have purchased a two-day fishing license and some lures at a big five store in town, either 
on December 20th or December 23rd. Those dates aren't fully known because the license shows December 23rd as the date issued. Quote, however, the store manager testified that the sales clerk was a seasonal employee and filled out the date issued wrong. Again, something we'll come back to. On December 22nd, Scott and Amber spoke on the phone. He claimed that he was calling from, quote, the Sacramento airport to fly to meet his parents, his mother and father, in Kennebunkport in Maine until the 28th when he would be flying out to go to Paris for the new year. The next day, December 23rd, they spoke again. That day, Scott called in on his acting chops again. According to Amber's later testimony, quote, he told me he was going to be going on a tour, guided duck hunt with his father and a tour person. They were on their way at that point in a vehicle. He was describing what he was doing in Maine at the moment. I think it's safe to pull back the curtain on this one and say, um, Scott wasn't in fucking Maine. He was in Modesto. And now we've arrived to one of the last days of our countdown, the penultimate day, as it were. Let me tell you how the 48 hours of December 23rd and December 24th, 2002, played out for Lacey and Scott Peterson, as far as we know. At 8.30 a.m. on December 23rd, Margarita Nava arrived at the Peterson home. She was the recently hired housekeeper, ideally someone who was going to help Lacey with all the cleaning around the house since she was so easily winded and prone to dizziness at this point in her pregnancy. Lacey had actually just shared with one of their neighbors, Karen Servus, the night before that she'd been so dizzy and out of sorts a few weeks prior, she'd almost fallen into their backyard pool. When Nava arrived, Scott had already left for the day, and Lacey was up and about, puttering around before heading out on some errands. According to her testimony, Margarita, quote, performed her usual cleaning routine for Lacey. She first dusted, then cleaned the bathrooms using Clorox and Pine Sol, the bedrooms, the hallway, the dining room, the living room, then the kitchen. She used Pine Sol on the floors. After mopping, she put the mop outside by the door by the washer to dry out. She put the rags that she used to clean inside the bucket and put the bucket on top of the washing machine. At 9.26 a.m., a cash register receipt showed that Scott rented a private mailbox at Mailboxes Etc., now known as the UPS store, in a shopping center near downtown Modesto. Between 9.27 and 9.42, though, computer forensics showed that someone was on Scott's computer at the warehouse in Modesto. What's interesting to note here is that Scott was the only Trade Corps employee to work in Modesto since all of the others worked out of Fresno. At 10 a.m., Nava reported that Scott returned home to grab a FedEx envelope. Lacey, meanwhile, spent the morning running errands at Trader Joe's, returned home with the groceries, and then she went to a facial waxing appointment at Sweet Serenity Day Spa at 1 p.m. She arrived early, though, somewhere between 12.30 and 12.45, and she chatted with two of the women there. A manicurist, Tina Reinsert, testified that Lacey had said that she was tired, and Lacey wasn't herself that day. Michelle Buer, however, said otherwise. She testified, quote, that Lacey was a rare pregnant woman, very happy through the whole pregnancy. She did later state, though, 
that Lacey had shared she was, quote, uncomfortable and having trouble sleeping. At 2.30 that afternoon, the housekeeper, Margarita Nava, left. At 2.35 p.m., Lacey arrived for what would be her last prenatal appointment. The doctor that she saw that day, Dr. Esther Tao, reported that, quote, the baby was doing fine. Also, the baby patient had reported that the baby was very active, active fetal movement, meaning the baby was moving well. She testified that had Lacey gone into labor on that day, December 23rd, Connor would have been born and would have been a viable baby. At 4.35 p.m., Lacey spoke with her friend Stacy Bowers, who had thrown the Christmas party that she attended alone. According to Stacy, she wished her a Merry Christmas and, quote, she was as happy as ever. I mean, ready for Christmas and cheerful. At 5.45 p.m., both Lacey and Scott link up. They had made plans for Scott to get his hair cut by Lacey's half-sister Amy, where she worked at a place called Salon Salon. Amy, however, was running late because she had been setting up a gift basket at a farm stand that would have been given to her and Lacey's grandfather for Christmas. When she arrived, Lacey shared that she was tired, especially after such a busy day. Scott told her that she should order a pizza for dinner, so Lacey used the salon's phone to do so. They invited Amy to join them, but she had other plans. She did, however, tell them that the gift basket would be ready the next day, sometime in the afternoon. From Amy's testimony, quote, I told her that I had purchased everything, and it was going to stay over there. They were going to wrap it, and it was supposed to be picked up the next day. Scott said that he would be out that way golfing, and he would be able to pick it up. Plans set for the next day, and Scott's haircut finished. Amy quickly helped Lacey set her hair into a, quote, fun flip, ready for the holidays. At 8.30 that night, Lacey finally got a hold of her mother, Sharon. The two had been playing phone tag for the majority of the day. According to Sharon, they spoke for, quote, maybe a minute or two. She called to tell me that they were coming over the next evening for dinner, Christmas Eve dinner, and I asked her at that time. She told me that she hadn't, she didn't buy gifts for everybody yet. That was going to be that evening. I told her that I was fine. She told me that she'd gone to the doctor that day. Everything was fine. The doctor said her pregnancy was normal. There weren't any problems. That was the last time Sharon spoke to her daughter. And it was the last known time anyone outside of Scott spoke to Lacey Peterson. As far as we know it, these are the events of the morning of December 24th, 2002, according to Scott Peterson. The morning started normal enough. From his first police interview, Scott shared that Lacey, quote, eats right when she wakes up, otherwise she gets sick because she's pregnant. I laid around in bed longer. I got up at, I don't know, 8 o'clock probably or so. Uh, showered. Uh, we were watching her favorite show, Martha Stewart. Watched a little bit of that. Lacey allegedly asked Scott to bring in the mop bucket and fill it for her. She planned to mop and clean up the kitchen, go shopping for the Christmas brunch they were hosting the next day, and walk Mackenzie. The brunch menu included French toast, and Scott believed that Lacey was planning to make the Cordon Bleu challah bread French toast. He said that she had plans to make gingerbread cookies for their dinner at her parents, and they had planned to leave for her parents' house around 4 p.m. 
Now, quick sidebar here that I just can't resist. We know Lacey has been getting winded and hadn't been feeling her best at this stage in her pregnancy. We also know that their housekeeper, Margarita, had just been at the house quite literally the day before. Part of her routine was to clean the kitchen and mop the floors, which she had done. So forgive me if I find it a little odd that Lacey would have asked Scott to fill up the mop bucket for her so she could mop pregnant-ass Lacey right after their housekeeper had just done it. At 8.40 a.m., someone in the Peterson home used the laptop there to do some internet perusing. This person looked at, quote, a five-day weather forecast for San Jose and a Yahoo shopping site featuring a garden weather vane. At 8.44 a.m., a scarf on the Gap website was viewed, but not purchased. An umbrella stand covered in sunflowers was also looked at, but similarly wasn't purchased. At 8.45 a.m., Scott's email account was accessed, and an email regarding a Ping Staff golf bag that he had auctioned on on eBay was looked at. No emails about the bag or any other matter, though, were sent. Between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m., the Martha Stewart Living Show was on the air. As Scott later told police, quote, They had on some cooking deal. I don't know, cookies of some sort. They were talking about what to do with meringue. The meringue segment in question should be noted aired that morning at 9.48 a.m. Now, we're not going to get into all of the alleged sightings of both Lacey and Scott that took place that morning. We will leave all of that for part two, so don't fret. Between 9.30 and 9.35 a.m., Scott claims he left their home on Covina Ave and left to go to the warehouse. He claims that Lacey was preparing to mop the floors and then take Mackenzie for his walk. Scott claims that that was the last time that he ever saw his wife. When he arrived at the warehouse, Scott, quote, checked his email and went and sent an email. He worked on building a mortising woodworking machine. Scott said that he decided to fish instead of golf because the weather was too cold for golf. At 10.08 a.m., Scott called his voicemail, and the entire exchange took 1 minute and 21 seconds. The cell tower that the call pinged off of was located at 1250 Brighton Ave, which serviced the area of Covina Ave, where Scott and Lacey's home was. According to phone records, quote, while the call was in process, the transmission was switched to the cell tower at 10th and D at the water tower near downtown Modesto. A police officer later timed a drive from the Covina home to the border of the Brighton town radius and it took exactly one minute and 21 seconds. At 10.18 a.m., Karen Servas, the Peterson's neighbor who Lacey had spoken with about almost fainting weeks before, she noticed something. Standing in the street, leash still attached all alone, was Mackenzie, Lacey and Scott's dog. As Karen shared on the stand, this is what she did that morning after she noticed Mackenzie. Quote, I went over to him and checked his tags to make sure he was actually Mackenzie, and he was. I noticed that he had his leash on, and so I took the leash and I walked over to Scott and Lacey's house. I felt a little panicked because the front gate was locked, but then I heard some raking in the backyard, and so I figured I'd go try and see if the side gate was unlocked or opened. I noticed that Lacey's car was there, so I went, and as I came around the corner, the side gate, which is located right there, was open. 
It was ajar, so I figured that she must be in the backyard, so I walked into the backyard with the dog. And then I walked with the dog along the cement by the pool, up to right at the end of the house, and I looked to the left. Didn't see anything. No activity at the house. Walked back along, back through the covered patio area, and then that's where I basically said, you know, Mackenzie, stay, you know, bye-bye, shut the gate, and I left. She later stated that she was able to somewhat pinpoint that 10.18 a.m. timestamp based on retracing her steps from her actions that morning, her cell phone records, and various timestamped receipts. Now, Scott stated that he checked his email and worked on a project when he arrived at work, but forensic technicians were able to nail down exactly when Scott logged onto his work computer, and that time frame was from 10.30 a.m., to 10.56 a.m. Between 10.35 a.m. and 10.50 a.m., the neighborhood postman, Russell Graybill, made his rounds and stopped at the Peterson house. He was familiar with everyone on his route and testified that, as a job hazard, most mailmen, quote, know where the dogs live. Graybill was familiar with Lacey, Scott, and Mackenzie, and he said that he heard no barking from the Peterson home that day, and he stated that Mackenzie, if the gate was ever open, he normally would have come through the yard to say hello while staying on the Peterson grass. At 11.44 a.m., Scott received a call from his father. It went to voicemail, and no location pings were ever released about this particular call. Scott initially told police that he arrived at the Berkeley Marina at 12 noon, but his time-stamped receipt shows that he arrived at 12.54 p.m., Scott claims that in a 90-minute time frame, he, quote, launched his boat, drove north for two hours to Brooks Island. He trolled a bit, and then it got choppy and started to rain, so he went back in. Berkeley Marina, where he was sailing that day, I want to note, is 72 miles away from Modesto. At 2.12 p.m., Scott made three phone calls. The first was to his voicemail, and it lasted 28 seconds. He then made called the house phone, hoping to get a hold of Lacey. That call lasted 29 seconds. Then he made a 30-second phone call to Lacey's cell and left this message on her voicemail. Hey, beautiful, I just left you a message at home. It's 2.15. I'm leaving Berkeley. I won't be able to get out to Vela Farms to get the basket for Papa. I was hoping that you would get this message and could go on out there. I'll see you in a bit, sweetie. Love you. Bye. At 2.40 p.m., Scott finally returned his dad's call. This lasted for three minutes and nine seconds. The call was transmitted via the cell tower located at 2103 Lake Shabbat Road in Castro Valley, California. Castro Valley is 63 miles away from Modesto. At 2.45 p.m., Scott called Lee again. This time it was transmitted via the cell tower at 6390 Grassland Drive in Castro Valley. This call lasted two minutes and 27 seconds that we don't know what was said. At 3.44 p.m., a voicemail arrived in Scott's inbox. The contents, caller, and cell tower of this call haven't ever been made known publicly. At 3.45 p.m., Vela Farms called Amy, Lacey's half-sister. Scott had never arrived to pick up the gift basket for the girl's grandfather, but the store closed at 4, so they asked Amy what her plan was to get the basket. Amy called their house as well as Scott's cell phone. He didn't answer his cell, and she didn't leave a message on either of the phones, so she went to Vela Farms herself. At 3.52 p.m., Scott called Lacey again after getting gas for his car. He left a second message for her and then headed back to the warehouse. 
From there, he unloaded his boat and allegedly checked his email. At 4 p.m., Ron, Lacey's stepfather, called her about bringing whipping cream with her to dinner, but he had to leave a voicemail because she didn't answer. He left the message on the house phone. Between 4.30 and 4.45 p.m., Scott claims that that is when he arrived back at their house. As he told police, quote, he went through the gate into the backyard and saw Mackenzie with the leash on running free. He took the leash off and put it on the picnic table. He went into the house through the French doors that led in from the backyard into a little nook right off the kitchen. The French doors were unlocked. The cat and Mackenzie followed him in, and the cat ran towards the mop bucket of water. He took the bucket outside and dumped it and put the bucket and the mops outside next to the front door. He went to the washing machine, removed a pile of white towels from inside, took off his clothes, and then put them in the washer and started the wash cycle. He claims he washed his clothes because they were wet from the bay and from the rain. He went into the kitchen, got a box of cold pizza out of the fridge, poured a glass of milk, and ate one piece of pizza and part of another one. He went to the bathroom and took a shower. He checked messages on the answering machine. He heard the two messages he left on the way home and the one from Ron. Scott later told police that he wasn't alarmed when Lacey wasn't home because he assumed that she was at her mom's. Then, when he heard the message from Ron, he said to himself, Hey man, he's calling me for whipped cream. At 5.17 p.m., Scott called Sharon to see if Lacey was actually there. Plot twist, she wasn't. Sharon, alarmed, told Scott to call around to some of Lacey's friends to see if they knew where she was. At 5.26 p.m., Scott called their mutual friend Stacy. According to Stacy's testimony, quote, Scott had called me on December 24th at, I think it was 529, I've got my phone record, and he asked me if I'd seen Lacey or talked to her today. I said, no, I hadn't. When he asked me to call a few of the girlfriends and see if they had been with her, and that she was missing. And he got off the phone really abruptly, so I called a few of the girlfriends and called him back. Stacey, it should be noted, later changed her testimony to state that the call actually took place at 526. At 5.30 p.m., Scott went across the street and asked a neighbor, Amy Krigbaum, if she had seen Lacey. Amy was surprised to even see Scott. She testified that she and her partner had assumed that the two of them were out of town, quote, because their shades had not been up all day and she'd seen no movement there. Quote, she could not reconstruct the exact questions and answers, but Amy said in the course of the conversation and questions, Scott said that he had been golfing all day and that he had tried to call Lacey all day. At 5.32 p.m., Scott called Sharon again to tell her that none of Lacey's friends had heard or seen her that day. Between 5.45 p.m. and 6.03 p.m., Scott made and or received 11 different phone calls. And in the middle of all these calls, someone else made a call. Ron, Lacey's stepfather. And he was calling the police. Because at 5.48 p.m. on December 24th, 2002, Lacey Peterson was officially reported missing. How can I help you? Yes, um, my son-in-law called. He was playing golf this morning at 9.30. My daughter's been missing since this morning. She's eight months pregnant. She took her dog for a walk in the park. Mm -hmm. The dog came home with just the leash shot. Eight months pregnant on Christmas Eve night of all nights. It was official. Lacey Peterson was gone. <laughs> 
Though we're only on part one of the story of Lacey Peterson, I wouldn't ever leave you hanging without some hashtag questions to ruminate on until part two. So let's start with them. Question number one, what really happened with Scott's involvement with the ASU golf team? Was he kicked off the team? Was he ever on it in the first place? Why lie about something so innocuous? When Lacey was working in Prunedale right after her graduation and while Scott was finishing his degree, did he cheat on her as prosecutors have later suggested? If so, with who? And if he did, is it true that he cheated on her with more than one woman? Is there any veracity to the rumor that Lacey knew about his infidelity because she had walked in on him or she had been walked in on with him by the woman that he was cheating on her with? Did Lacey actually know about any possible infidelity during these first two years of their marriage? Why didn't Eric Olson confront Scott at the CAPCA conference when he started pretending like he wasn't married while talking to Sean Sibley? How did Scott come up with his lies to Sean so easily? How many people at the conference and within these conversations, how many people knew Scott was lying? And why didn't anyone confront him? Why was Scott so open about his lies in front of people that actually knew his life and he knew knew his life? Why do such a stupid fucking thing at all? When Scott claimed that he had launched and then sold a European company, simply what was that about and why would he say that? And what was the number attached to that company's business card that he eventually gave to Sean? Did Scott have a second cell phone? Did Scott tell Sean, and by extension Amber, that he was living in Sacramento to have a reasonable location to explain away his own comings and goings at any given time? Was Lacey still walking even though her doctor had told her not to? How did Scott even come up with all of his first date lies to Amber in the first place? Why did Scott take Lacey to Disneyland when she didn't want to go and was so miserable in her pregnancy at the time? When Scott and Amber picked out a Christmas tree, there have been rumors over the years that the lot owner made some sort of comment to them but that comment has never been revealed in court since it's always been argued by Scott's defense that it's simply hearsay. What exactly was this comment and why is it so damning? If Al Masri hadn't ever let it slip that he knew a married Scott Peterson from Modesto who worked for Trade Corps, would any of his lies have ever come to light? Why didn't Eric Olson cop to it when Sean finally confronted him on December 6th? Why did Scott gravitate towards saying that he, quote, lost his wife? Why such a strange and vague turn of phrase? Why was the December 9th boat purchase so seemingly hush-hush? Bruce Peterson kept his anchors when he sold Scott the boat. If Scott didn't have any anchors of his own and there's no record of him buying any, how did he anchor the boat at all when he took it out? Did Scott use the cement in his warehouse to make an anchor or multiple anchors? If so, where are they? 
When Scott and Lacey had dinner with her parents on December 15th, and they discussed Ron and Sharon's fishing trip that day, why didn't Scott bring up the boat then? Was he keeping it a secret? Why would he do that? If Lacey knew about the boat, why didn't she say anything about it? Why, and logistically speaking, how, did Scott and Amber share upwards of 10 phone calls during the three-day trip to Carmel, surrounded by Lacey and Scott's family? What day was it that Scott actually got his two-day fishing license, and why is it so unclear which day it was? Did the clerk fill it out wrong and Scott got it on the 20th? But if so, then it would have expired by the time he went to the marina on the 24th. So if not, then why didn't he use it during the 20th, 21st, or 22nd like he was legally allowed to? Why did Scott buy a private mailbox on December 23rd? Why would Lacey say that she was going to mop the floors and clean the kitchen on the 24th when the housekeeper had literally just done all of that the day before and she didn't have the energy to do so? Lacey allegedly mentioned to a friend that she had started walking again at the beginning of December because she was worried about how much pregnancy weight that she had gained. Was that actually true, though? Was she walking regularly? Regularly enough to have a schedule about it? Did Lacey actually go on a walk with Mackenzie on December 24th? Wouldn't taking Mackenzie out i.e. trying to control a large dog like a golden retriever while heavily pregnant, which Mackenzie was a large dog like a golden retriever, wouldn't all of that be more strenuous than just a regular walk after Lacey already had problems with dizziness, shortness of breath, and general fatigue? How would Scott have actually known when she went on a walk? Did Scott build this idea of Lacey going on a walk that morning around the timelines that People later started to claim that they saw her during. Why was Mackenzie wandering around by himself? How did that all come to pass? Who was on the laptop in the Peterson house that morning? What time did Scott actually leave the house that morning? Where was Scott, actually, when he checked his voicemail at eight at 10.08 a.m., when that voicemail checked into the cell tower that serviced Covina Avenue, and then suddenly switched to another tower at the end of checking the voicemail. Why was the front gate of their yard locked when Karen's service went to return Mackenzie? And why was the side gate open? Computer forensics show that Scott didn't check into his work email until sometime between 10.30 and 10.50 that morning. So where the fuck was Scott during that time if he left the house at 9 or 9.30? Scott was off by almost an hour, 54 minutes to be exact, when he told police that he arrived at the Berkeley Marina at noon. He arrived at 12.54. So how does he account for that mishap and that wide gap of time? Why in the fuck would anyone drive 72 miles out of the way to go fishing on a day that they claimed was rainy, but the harbor master said otherwise, which we'll get to, and all on Christmas Eve, no less? Scott said that he changed his plans from golfing to fishing because it was too cold to golf. But throughout the day in the next few, he still told people that he had gone golfing. So why the lie? What was the mysterious 3 o'clock, 3.45 p.m. voicemail all about? 
Who did it come from? Why didn't Scott answer Amy's call when she found out that he never went to Vela Farms? Had it actually rained at Berkeley that day, like Scott claimed? If not, then why did Scott say that he had to change his clothes because they got wet? When did Scott last see Amber in person? Was it December 20th, like Amber has stated? When was their last phone call before December 24th? Why did they suddenly go from multiple calls a day down to basically none? Why didn't Scott make the call to report his own wife missing? Was Lacey alive on December 24th, 2002? Did Lacey Peterson ever see December 24th, 2002? Or did she die sometime during the night of December 23rd? I hope this deep dive into the foundation of the Lacey Peterson story gives you all a lot to think about until part two comes out next week. We'll be examining all of the alleged sightings on that morning, all of the strange behavior, even more of the lies, Amber's bombshell of a press conference, and of course, all of the things that simply don't add up when it comes to the case of what exactly happened to Lacey and Connor Peterson. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. I'll be back here next week with the other half, the hashtag question-loaded story of Lacey Peterson to tell you. If you're interested in joining the Dot Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash podcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. There's a new Patreon level, and it only costs $1.00. You can support Dot and the work that I do here for just a dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode, as well as have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, that's also all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasthellpodcast at gmail.com or head over to darkasthellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. For those who celebrate, Merry Christmas this week. Happy holidays. Happy everything. Happy always. And I'll catch you all back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again. <laughs>